Welcome to the Finding Refuge podcast. My name is Michelle Cassandra Johnson, and I am glad you're here. The Finding Refuge podcast emerged from a desire to have conversations about the intersection of grief and liberation. This podcast explores how we can find refuge during unsettling and uncertain times. It features guests from various backgrounds, lineages, and lived experiences. I hope you enjoy listening. I'm very excited about today's podcast interview with Laura Schmidt and Amy Lewis Rao. I have been following their work through the Good Grief Network for quite some time, and it was an honor to share space with them. Laura Schmidt is the founder of the Good Grief Network and the brain behind the 10 Steps to Resilience and Empowerment in a Chaotic Climate Program and the Flow Facilitation Training Modality. She is a lifelong student, curator, and practitioner of personal and collective resilience strategies. Laura holds a BS in environmental studies, biology, and religious studies, and an MS in environmental humanities. Laura has earned certificates in integrative somatic trauma therapy and climate psychology. Amy Lewis Rao is the co-founder of the Good Grief Network and the heart behind the 10 Steps to Resilience and Empowerment in a Chaotic Climate program and the Flow Facilitation Training. Amy is an edgy and reverent contemplative healer and yoga intuitive movement instructor. She is also a DJ. Amy received her bachelor's degree in English, poetry, and religion from Central Michigan University before obtaining her MFA in creative nonfiction from Georgia College and State University. Laura and Amy's new book on eco-distress, How to Live in a Chaotic Climate, 10 Steps to Reconnect with Ourselves, Our Communities, and Our Planet, is available through Shambhala Publications. Enjoy the episode. Welcome, Laura and Amy. I'm so glad that you are here with me and that we're going to be in conversation about the time we're living through right now and um, your practice and your work um, around how to respond, how to show up, how to um, tend our hearts at this time, and so many things from your work and from your book, How to Live in a Chaotic Climate. Um, So thanks so much for making space and time to be here with me. Oh, thank you. It is truly an honor and pleasure to be here. And we're such big fans of your work. It's so necessary in these times. So thank you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. um, As I was diving into your book, I was, I was like, oh, there's so much resonance in our work and, and, and I think I knew that from following you all on social media and reading some about you and just reading your words and taking them in. I was like, there's so much overlap here. Um, So nice to meet some kindreds on the path. That's how I felt as I was diving into your book and, and receiving your words and your, your practice. And 
I would love for each of you to share a little bit about, there's a lot, but to share a little about um, how your hearts are feeling right now. So how is your heart is actually my first, first question. Ooh, that's, that's a big one. (laughs) Do you want to start or do you want me to start? How about you start? Okay. Yeah, it's a it's a big question. And I'm really grateful for it. Because how often in our day to day do we actually get to ask each other this question? Um, my heart is broken. I feel like I'm in a period of rearrangement and, and questioning. And I go through these periods every once in a while. But I just, I don't understand how we can be at such a critical position in time in humanity, and still have space to other still have space to engage in mass violence and systemic oppression like this is a time for all hands on deck and all resources going towards healing and connection and i fully believe that we are capable and and then you see what's unfolding in the middle east and you see what's unfolding in the day to day and so i'm taking a step back and reorienting and trying to get back to my practices which i i think we'll talk about in a moment but um i'm a little I'm a little floating. I'm a little uh, discombobulated with with where I'm at spiritually and professionally and personally. Thank you for your authenticity with that, Laura. And and I am brokenhearted as well. And um, this time of year, I have seasonal depression. And so it's always a hard time for me, even without the collective traumas we have going on. And so because of that, it's really important that I focus on the little joys and the little gratitudes uh, so that I don't get stuck in that grief and that brokenheartedness and in that despair. And so like we just went for a walk outside in the sunshine with the trees and uh, it it filled me up and we get to watch our dogs be silly all the time and make us laugh and you know, we have a, our nieces and nephews who are amusing as all get out. One of them's four and just thinks he's, you know, knows everything. And it's hilarious to watch him engage with the world. And um, it's an intentional practice. And I don't want to say I do it all the time. I can get stuck in that despair as a person with depression and heartbreak. But um, overall, uh, the little things are sustaining me. Mm-hmm. Thank you for that question. Yeah, of course. And that makes me think of a place we'll go in just a little bit around one of the um, steps out of the 10 in the book, How to Live in a Chaotic Climate is about beauty and, and seeking beauty and gratitude. So I want to I wanna talk about that. And I wanted to name it here because I feel like you just brought it up as a practice. And I'm also in my own experience. And as I connect with my heart, I'm thinking about the dissonance that can arise for me as I'm like seeking beauty and writing my gratitude statements. And so many things are happening in the world to cause heartbreak, right? Polarization and wars and genocide and strife and um, hunger and all of these different things and people not having what they need. And, and yet I believe in this practice of seeking beauty and it's part of what I think people have done for all of time to survive, right? To thrive, to find resilience, to be in the expanse of, of what is actually present to remember is, is often how I, how I talk about it. Um, I would love for you all, and you can decide who would like to go first for you to share some about 
your path, who you are, the work that you do? I know this is a really big question. It's kind of as vast as how is your heart really? And I just want listeners to know some about each of you and the the work that you do and the praxis and and I think how to live in a chaotic climate is like a theory of change and how we show up and how we stay present and how we connect with one another. So I'd love for you to share some about, about who you are. Yeah. And we would be honored to do that, but I'm also wondering if maybe we could backtrack just a little bit and ask how your heart is and, and be in conversation and, and community about that. Yeah. That's so interesting because I was like, oh, I, I was like, I wonder if they're going to ask me that question back and then, and I'm fine answering it. And also I was like, and I'm talking to that, like I'm interviewing them. And so I don't want to take up space in that way. And that feels very um, aligned with the little I know about you all, but the like work that you do to be in community in that way. So um, my heart, um, I was sharing this before we started recording and I have honeybees. And earlier today I went and sat with them and I usually go and sit with them as much as I can. And I'm aware that I've sat with them during moments of deep heartbreak and sorrow and moments of joy and also how healing it is to watch them do what they do. They were bringing in a ton of pollen today, orange and white and yellow pollen, one hive in particular and another, I think they were taking cleansing flights and then coming back to the hive. And so, and often I think about the bees when I think about the heart and even what they're doing in the darkness of winter, which is creating something that looks like a heart or um, sometimes is described as a womb, that kind of shape to warm themselves so they can survive the darkness and the winter. And so as I think about my own heart, I am present to the darkness and I'm present to, I, I think about the bees with this a lot, what can happen in the dark, which I equate with uncertainty, which is something you all have spoken about, written about. Um, and also accepting what is, right? The severity of what is. I know that this is the first step, right? The severity of the predicament we are in. And so my heart is accepting the severity of the predicament we're in as I understand it. And my heart is seeking beauty and connection. And the honeybees remind me to do this. And they also remind me of how much can be birthed in the dark or from the darkness or through the darkness. So I'm I'm feeling into that in my heart. And, and finally, I just got to see my mom, Clara, over the weekend. And that was good medicine for my spirit and heart. She, she's dear to me, as many people know. Um, and so my heart is still filled with gratitude from having spent time with her. So thanks for, for asking me. Thank you. Thank you. That was mm-hmm. beautiful. And uh, you you asked about our path to the work. And it's it's funny because... I think we each live so many different lifetimes and the the narrative that we choose to bring up in a in an interview is sometimes a challenge. Um, I'll just say that for me to be on this path, I lived with a lot of loss, a lot of neglect, a lot of poverty and abuse, and I shut out the world for a long time and didn't know how to feel. I I, I didn't learn that skill. I didn't have the resources to do that. And after living for a long time like that, I realized that I don't have access to much joy or connection or meaning, and yet I'm alive. And so if I'm alive, that I have to figure out how to be fully alive. Otherwise, what's what's the point of 
living through so much trauma. Um, and so my path brought me here because I, I want to remain awake and aware and clear and I want to feel it. I like, I want to be engaged. I, I want to live the extent of my life. Uh, it, you know, there's this quote that says something like, it's not how many years you're alive. It's sort of the width of the, of life. And so my path is to experience the width of, of this life for however long I'm here. That's, that's today's answer. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Thank you, Laura. Uh, my path has been uh, pretty rocky. Um, but I believe it's those experiences that uh, make me better able to do grief work. And so I've learned to really appreciate my past, even though it's painful. Um, I lived with a lot of mental illness and perfectionism. And eventually I got into activism as a teenager. Um, I grew up Catholic and I was lucky enough to have some nuns around me who were radical feminists before feminism even existed and had been arrested in the civil rights movement. And they just really lit my heart on fire. And I got uh, into human rights activism quite a bit and I stayed uh, stayed in it. Uh, but when I started having extreme mental health problems at 21 years old, it was recommended that I step away. And I just couldn't sit with that. I couldn't sit with not being involved in the reality of what's going on and then running away that felt insufficient and, and not what I'm here on earth to do. And so I had to find another way to be an activist that didn't completely uh, deplete my health. And um, it's been a long road and meeting Laura when I was 20 years old was revolutionary. Uh, we started arguing right away about whether human rights activism or environmental activism was more important. And we just kept going in circles and circles until eventually we're like, oh, they're connected. And uh, that's that was, you know, the, the birth of good grief. Thank you for sharing some. I love what you just said, Amy, about the, the arguing right immediately about different issues and, and what feels most present. Right. And um, what we're connected to and then realizing the connection um, and then the birth of good grief from that space of tension, really a dynamic tension of, of where we're being pulled. Um, so thank you to both of you for, for sharing some about what led you to this path and the authenticity of the trauma, right. And how that the many experiences of trauma led you to this space, Laura and Amy, what you shared about activism and mental health and, I think about this a lot, like we're in the fire in so many ways. And I find that, you know, when we're actually willing to accept what is and be with it and feel into it and then advocate for change or feel the heartbreak about injustice, that that certainly disrupts the system and dysregulates the system, um, even as we're trying to change it, right? We're in it in this very intense way. And I want to ask each of you about grief. And uh, I, I think grief is such an amazing teacher. And also <laughs> grief is not an easy path in my experience. And yet it's the path I'm on. It's like, this is part of life and what is happening. And 
as a human, I create grief for people and systems in the planet all of the time. So I want to acknowledge I'm also like instigating these things and then unexpected things happen. I'm wondering what grief is teaching each of you now, given that you work with grief in such a, let's say, tender and intensive way. Um, what is it teaching you now? If anything, if that question doesn't resonate and you're like, it's not teaching me a thing right now, <laughs> you can say something else about grief. That's fine with me. Well, I'm thinking about how grief is always teaching me something. Like the moment I think I know something about grief, I, it floors me and it reminds me that it's wild and that I'm not in control of it. And I can think, oh, I've gotten really good at processing grief. I know what I'm doing. And then some trauma or heartbreak will happen that makes me start all over again. And that's also what I admire about it is it is wild and I think it's why it's such a universal connector for us as human beings I think when we sit next to someone in grief we automatically feel warm feelings towards that person because we've all like you don't get out of this life without experiencing grief and so I am constantly in awe of it and at the same time don't want to pretend it doesn't completely bowl me over sometimes, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And um, I'm thinking about how much I'm just appreciating this question because so often we, we can talk in the theoretical realm and in the heady realm. I'm, I'm very good at that. I excel at the sort of logical parts of life and Anyone who has really known grief, which again, Amy just addressed that that's all of us. We don't we don't get out of this experience without it. Um, if we can tap into it for a moment that we know those feelings and they're deep and they're heavy, but there's also some some beauty in it. And, and I think this time on earth calls us into more embodiment, into more feeling and less theoretical, less philosophical, less talking about it and more feeling about it. And I suppose that's what grief does for me is reminds me, I guess you kind of said it too, but, but it surrender is not easy for me. <laughs> like I very much like things to be planned. I like things to be organized. I, I know what I'm doing from moment to moment and grief absolutely does not have a timeline. It doesn't have a structure. It's not from A to B to C. It's like A and then D and then back to B and then sometimes back to A. Uh, I often equate it to being like you're in a dryer on the like the tumble cycle where you're just sort of like, oh, this is it. This is what I'm feeling today. And I also think that grief teaches us courage and the the capacity to stay with things that are hard. And grief is such an uncomfortable experience and if we can learn to stay with it and move through it that there is some lesson on the other side and i i think a lot about francis weller and who is uh, he calls himself a grief activist and how much he talks about this maturity that comes from allowing ourselves to be at the pace of grief and and to go into the depths of grief and that we will come back with wisdom that we can share and it becomes medicine for our communities. And I hold on to that as a lesson. Like we don't just grieve because we're supposed to, we don't just grieve because like we need to, we grieve because there's lessons in it that we need to come back and bring into this world that are often lost or missed because the dominant culture doesn't want us to tap in into that. Yes, medicine and what you all shared. And I love Francis Weller. He was actually 
I think in season one of this podcast and I just loved um, sharing with him and admire his work and, and what you uplifted and what you all share in your work too, about the wisdom that can come from grief if we allow ourselves to be with it. And it's making me think about humanness. It's like, if we allow ourselves to be fully human, which means that we are with the grief, right? It's not the only part of the experience. Wisdom comes from, from that versus turning away from um, the cycle of life and death or birth and death, or that we will lose so many things as we journey in these lifetimes. So I appreciate that. And, and I'm, and, and you mentioned embodiment, um, Laura, and I, I am sitting with how people, and I think this goes into some of the other steps in, um, y'all's book, how people can stay in their bodies because they're, I think we're incentivized to move away from the body because of dominant narratives and the dominant paradigm. And um, it's hard to stay. And so I'm wondering if, I mean, each of you can speak to this or however you want to respond, how we stay, which mean, which requires that we stay in the body enough to be present. And I'd love to hear some of your thoughts on that or feelings about that. I think about this a lot as a yoga teacher and uh, someone who lives with chronic pain. My body is a painful place to be many times. And yet when I am present with my body and move slow and really listen to it, it gives us a power when we're embodied. It adds an intensity to our voice. It really changes how we show up. And I believe that it makes us deeper connected to each other. I know I read about that in Skill in Action, about how yoga is about deepening our connection to ourself and to each other. And when I'm in my body, I'm more sensitive to what's happening around me. I notice more. I notice that person next to me who seems like maybe they're having a bad day and they need a smile or a hello or just an I see you. So it's, it's kind of like a superpower. To be embodied in these times, because everything is pulling for us not to be, to be looking at the screen all the time, to, to you know, be watching the news, to be arguing with someone on Twitter. <laughs> there's always, there's always something pulling us out of our bodies. And so it really is a superpower to be embodied in this time and use our voice accordingly. I just want to say, I love that, the superpower. I wholeheartedly agree and have not always thought about it that way, but the description of it as a superpower, like building our capacity to, to be in the body, to come back to the body and the connection to others through that experience of embodiment. So thank you for, for that offering. And the only thing that I would add uh, to Amy's brilliant answer is that for me, my default is to not be embodied. And so this is part of my healing work is that I have to continuously etch out time and space to come back. Like I don't even realize when I've lost or left my body. It just happens because that is what I do every day. That's what my programming, that's what, that's the way that my constitution is made after so many years of just escaping feeling and being present and so my task in this lifetime is to come back to the body, to come back to sensation, to see what's actually happening in there. And it is, it's a very slow journey. It, it, it takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of commitment and energy to get back to being embodied when you spent half your life 
fighting against that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I appreciate you sharing that. And, and also want to say that, and you all know this, you've spoken to it, you've written about it. And many listeners may know this too, you know, that trauma and you all actually describe many different types of trauma in your work and your book. And obviously that moves us away from the body, right? So there's the incentivization by systems of dominance that do that. And then there are the traumatic experiences we have because of dominance on all the different levels, I would say personally and interpersonally and institutionally and culturally that are meant to move us away from the body. So I just want to name that because this isn't about shaming that process of disembodiment that happens because of trauma, right? Ancestral and what's happening in this lifetime um, and what we're enduring. And I just want to name that for anyone who, it just feels important to name it. Um, For sure. Yeah. Because in, you know, as a, as a yoga teacher as well, and spiritual practitioner, it can, it, it can feel like enlightenment is coming back to the the body all of the time and breathing and noticing how you feel and feeling into the bliss and that connection and sure. And also, right. There are things that move us away from the body very intentionally. And it is a process of learning. Oh, I've left, right. How do I, how do I come back? Um, so I just wanted to, to share that. And it requires a certain level of relative safety. Like right. if you're always under threat, you it's not safe to be embodied. I, I so appreciate you bringing this up. And I'm learning. I'm, I'm um, deep into somatics right now. I'm very engaged with, with somatics as a, a healing modality. And they honor where you're at. They honor your survival strategies. And I think it's so brilliant because so so often it's easy to get into the shame narrative that you just named. And so thank you for bringing that in because it, like we're really brilliant at survival. What we're not brilliant at is remembering to be whole and remembering how to connect and heal. And that's because of all the forces you're naming that keep us fragmented and keep us apart and keep us away from healing. The world's a really hard place to be in if you're awake and aware. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And the process in my own experience of awakening is like this continual process, right? Over and over and takes practice and like dedication. And, and I appreciate what you named about relative safety and resources, right? And the space to have access to resources that call me into awakening um, in the way we're, we're talking about. So it's, it's complex. It feels complex and layered and nuanced, um, which is one of the reasons why I love the the different steps, right? It wasn't like you were like, do this one thing and you can survive the chaotic climate. You were like, there are actually many things that we can practice. And I um, love that and your framework around it. And I'm curious to know, I'm asking this because in my own experience, I have lots of practices and sometimes I gravitate towards um, a few of them right out of the tool bag that I have of practices. I'm wondering what y'all's practices are right now. It can be from the the 10 steps or it can be something else. If you would like to name that we, we named the beauty and gratitude, but didn't go into that. So that might be one of them. I'm just curious, like where your attention is with these 10 steps and, and which ones are rising to the top right now. Yeah, thank you for that question. I'm thinking about how I'm in a time where I've fallen away from some of my practices and that can feel really groundless, but some practices that are consistent for me is music, listening to music deeply. Uh, Whenever I don't know what to do, I listen to music and it calms me. It uh, 
clears my head. And so that's probably my biggest practice is I, I like to listen to music. I like to play music. I DJ. Just anything with music really is a spiritual practice for me. And then also we do try to get into a yoga studio about once a week. And I find if I lose that, I really kind of lose my center and that I need that community to keep my practice up. I'm more likely to do yoga on my own if I'm practicing with a community. Whereas if I'm not, it completely falls away sometimes. And um, I'm just thinking about how it relates to our last question that, that getting on the yoga mat can be so intimidating and that it takes a tremendous amount of courage because if you are slipping away from your practices, if you are running away from trauma and trying not to be embodied and you take that moment to get into the four corners of your mat and feel safe, transformation happens there. And so I, I don't know what I would do without yoga and music. I don't think I would want to sign up for that life, mm-hmm. if I'm being honest. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you, Amy. I feel like I'm always searching for practices, like mine are insufficient, and I've not like met the ones I'm supposed to be doing. And so I'm trying to rewrite that narrative because Adrienne Marie Brown teaches us that we're always practicing something. I think that's actually just a somatics lesson in general, um, but it's popularized by Adrienne Marie Brown. And the practices that I come back to that, that I can say that I'm strong in are noticing. I really appreciate noticing. I love growing a house plant and noticing what's different. I love noticing the seasonality and and what the trees look like outside in different seasons and what the ground feels like in different seasons. Um, I'm in a pretty regular practice of communicating with my animals and and seeing their livelihoods and their rich inner worlds. Uh, We have a very emotive and strongly opinionated dog. And so it is so fun to engage with him because he's like, he knows what he wants and he sometimes doesn't care what we want for him. And it just like, I am such an animal lover that it reminds me that I, that I can project those feelings of, of Gus onto the animal world. and, And we, we need to do everything we can to protect just life in general. Like, sentience and the the amazing things that exist in the world and so my primary practice is is just noticing and and being with and coming back also to the to the notion that uncertainty is the reality regardless of when we exist on earth like that is a fundamental law of of this universe is uncertainty and that is such a hard lesson to learn especially as somebody who lives with anxiety I want things to be certain I want to know what's going to happen tomorrow and so my practice is is letting go and being with and and just challenging my notions of of control I guess it gets back to the surrender of grief like how can I be in more alignment with not knowing with not needing to know and just being with what is here and present. I'm 48 and I feel like, I don't know what prompted this. It may, it intensified during COVID is what I'll say. My willingness uh, to not know. (laughs) I, I mean, I think in some ways this has been present with me for a long time. And I just remember naming it that being like, I'm, there's something going on, you know, it doesn't make sense to me and I'm not necessarily okay with it. 
or I don't know what's happening. Um, and so my capacity is like expanded so much with being with the uncertainty. I'm not saying it's easy. There's just much more of a willingness to be like, I don't, I don't know what's, what's going on. Right. Um, or why this is happening or why it's happening in this way or what's going to happen next. And I'm thinking about what you said about anxiety and uncertainty. And, and I was like, yes. And I feel more liberated in the not knowing again, it's not that I'm okay with the conditions that are in place that are actually against nature and the natural order of things. I am not okay with that at all. I'm just leaning into the, I'm thinking about liminality, which I'm going to ask you all about because you have written about it. Um, and I feel like it's so related to how we live in this chaotic climate, how we live in the in-between, how we live with with uncertainty, which is the thing we're guaranteed in life. It's one of the things that will be present and just feeling into the, the like opening or freedom. And this may not be true for anyone else that has come for me um, from leaning into that, not knowing and the letting go, the surrender, all of these words we've used to describe this. Um, so I just wanted to, that was coming up and wanted to offer that. And I pulled this card from the archetype deck, Kim Cran's archetype deck the other day. That was the Gnosis card, which is knowledge. And there was a line in the translation of the card, which was, um, the end is in the beginning. The beginning is in the end. And I, it's been like, so in my body and psyche, and I've just been like, oh, right. That that's the cycle. I can't, it's just like so present for me. And when I was reading and, and thinking about deconstruction and reordering and the cycle, I was thinking about, oh, right. The end is in the beginning. The beginning is in the end. I don't say that in some like trying to say that to dismiss again, the things that are happening that are against the natural order. And it feels like that is the cycle. And so I'm wondering, and it feels connected to liminality, right. And uncertainty. And I'm wondering if you all might talk some about this deconstruction we're in the middle of and reordering. And um, if something resonated around this cycle of the beginning and the end and the between space, I'd just love to hear some about liminality and the way you all are thinking about it as a, as a way that we respond to the chaos is how I understood it. So that was a long musing and question, whatever you want to share is cool with me. I, I love it. And it, bless you. Sorry. Um, Fine, I, bless you. I love the question and it makes me think of how I studied poetry in undergrad and poetry made me obsessed with language, but it also made me obsessed with everything language can't do and can't say. And kind of being in those spaces of liminality and um, I see that a lot as a facilitator, the spaces between words, the breath between words and and how there's a lot of energy and emotion in those spaces. And so I like to lean into those spaces. I think people panic when language falls away and that there's so much to be learned and experienced in that space. And so I like that we talked about how you get comfortable, more comfortable. I don't know that you ever get fully comfortable there in these uncertain spaces and times, but uh, you get more practiced at it and it becomes less shocking. And I think that is my goal as a facilitator is to help people experience things beyond words and in that liminal space and get a little more comfortable there 
And I just keep thinking about how we lived in Arizona for a very short period of time, and it was an awful, uncertain time in our life. And I was crying at the foot of a giant saguaro cactus. And I just had this realization of like, I'm not the first human to do this. I'm not the first human to weep at the foot of a cact. These, these cacti, like uncertainty is part of, of life. And, and we get to connect with the world around us and be reminded we're not alone. People have been there before. And it was while I was there weeping and praying that I just heard this really clear voice say, participating in business as usual enables inaction. And it's a moment that completely changed my life. And that doesn't mean I've been able to completely withdraw from business as usual. We still go to sporting events for our nieces and nephews and, you know, very much participate in it. And simultaneously, it's made me more conscious of when I, why, when and why I par- choose to participate in business as usual. And also, where can I disrupt? And where can I, I just refuse to participate and say, I, I didn't sign this contract. I don't want to do this anymore. Yeah, there was a lot there, Amy. <laughs> I was thinking about deep time and how the cycle of existence I mean, and you even named it in your question, Michelle, but like there, things change constantly. There's a boom and there's a bust, there's death and there's life. And I think what dominant culture teaches us is that like, if we just do all the things right, we can sort of ward off death and we can sort of ward off any pain or suffering. You know, we don't have to age. We can do all these things that are just unrealistic. And then we are underprepared for when things like death do come or when suffering does come because we've been fed this bill of lies that we should follow this and do this and go to school and do these things. And I don't know, I just it used to make me so sad and it and it still does but i've been able to like kind of keep it in check but dominant culture gets to choose who succeeds and who fails despite how hard people push you know there are a lot of different obstacles for different people in different marginalizations and so for those of us who are the most privileged dominant culture works really well and has provided a tremendous amount of comfort and access to healthcare and you know like homes and jobs. And when you pan back and actually look at what's been sacrificed for dominant culture to succeed, it's so clear that this has to be a time of decay and collapse and composting because we can't just have the elite have it all. Like we have to even things out. We have to redistribute things. And and the only way to do that is to peel back some layers of toxicity. And, and that's what we're witnessing now. And of course, it's hard. You know, of course, it's disruptive. Of course, it challenges our very survival and then puts us into this fight or flight state, which is why we have to do the inner work. But like there's a freedom in deconstruction. That, that means we can level down to some foundation and then build up again. And I don't know what that building up looks like especially when we look at it on a deep time scale that's not for me to know in this lifetime what is mine to do in this lifetime is to work toward healing and make sure that i don't perpetuate the toxicity the othering the marginalizations that i've inherited and that 
I have perpetuated at certain points in my life. Like I'm have to deconstruct and reconstruct myself time and time again. And yeah, I think that's where the liminality comes in is like, it's not ours to know, but it is ours to do. Yeah, I appreciate that. All of what you all said and what you just said about not ours to know, it's ours to do. And the like process of, of clarifying purpose or being in alignment in the sense of like, we're, we're here, what are we going to do with the time that we have here? as we awaken to what is happening in this relative space and truth on this plane and how that calls us into being responsible and being conscious of, of what you named around the dominant narrative and paradigm and, and who these systems are working for. And that the, I think it's so true that of course, deconstruction has to happen. It's not that we want it to happen at the expense of people. And, and certainly it is happening in that way. Um, and a process of deconstruction and composting needs to happen. And I would say the, I, I'm curious about this, like the building up, I, I find myself curious about this all the time. Is it happening now as things are being deconstructed or it, does it happen after the deconstruction? Because sometimes it feels like it's, I mean, like this conversation is part of the building up is how I'm feeling about it. Right. What you all are doing, um, the work, the book, the good reef network, it's like, that's part of the building up and dreaming. And so sometimes I'm like, I think they're both happening at the same time. I don't know if that resonates. It's just, I just find myself very curious because it can feel like a binary of like, everything's falling apart. And I'm like, well, yes. And beautiful things are happening and people are creating these new ways of being or old ways of being or in their process of remembering all the time. And I would say you all are doing that, right? Like you're, you're doing that in so many ways and certainly through through your offering of this body of work and book. So I appreciate y'all going to the liminal space because I, I love it there. I don't want to live there. I'm like in my body and want to be here. And I, lo I love that space and also the wisdom that can come from leaning into to that liminal space that can be brought back to my like earthly experience. So there's a purpose to it. It's not like I'm going to the cosmos and I'll see you later. I won't be back. Right. Like I'm very right. much present in here. Although tempting, <laughs> right? <laughs> totally. It totally is. It is tempting. Yeah. I want to, I have a question about your book and it comes from experience in particular of writing, finding refuge where I had to, I felt like I was called to go through the process of grief as I was writing about grief. And that was just the journey. And I'm curious to know how it felt to write this because I'm like, did you all I know you went through the steps and the steps are ongoing. And did you find yourself in those spaces again, as you were writing about it? I'm just curious to know about your process because like, I don't know if there's a way to separate yourself from what you have written or the way you all wrote it and this offering. And so I'm just curious to know, did you have to go through, for example, in the same way or a different way, reconnecting with the severity of the predicament we're in, right? Or that connection with beauty and, and gratitude or so I'm just, or, or acknowledging harm, right? The harms we've caused. So I'm, I'm just curious to know some about that process of creating this offering. It was hell, <laughs> if I can be honest. Absolutely. <laughs> um, I was really ill. We were um, moving across the country, had a lot of financial insecurity. Um, Laura wrote 
the book uh, a lot by herself. We did have the help of my friend Chelsea Rivera, who is wonderful. And without her, I my presence wouldn't have been able to be in the book because I was not in a state to write it. And so Laura was doing a lot of this on her own. And I definitely, as a partner, witnessed her grief and her going deep into each step as she was writing it. And uh, I don't know if you want to speak more about that, but Laura superheroed it and finished the manuscript. And thank God she did. Yeah, yeah it was a uh, it was hell. <laughs> <laughs> I had no reserves to write it and there were deadlines. And so the only thing that I could do was just appeal to the more than human world. And I would just go to the rivers and I would go to the ocean. I was gifted some time uh, with the redwoods and gifted some time with the Pacific ocean and just continued to say, I have a platform, like, tell me what I can say, show me what I can say. And just continued to ask and, and, and try to gather some strength through that process. And I hope that that came through and I hope that the more than human world is is proud of what's in these in these words um and I'm gonna echo the gratitude for Chelsea because she showed up and she really gave us the backbone of the book she really helped us format it in a time when we just didn't have the capacity to do that so the book would not exist without Chelsea and her patience and I think we met for a year she interviewed us straight for a year Every Friday. Steps. she went through the 10-step program with us and just really invested her time and her energy into into helping us shape this book um and then she's amy's friend from graduate school so i think it was extra special for them to rekindle this relationship yeah it was great to have an excuse to see one of my good friends every week uh life gets so busy that you don't always get to do that and I also think because of our friendship is why I was able to go as deep as I did, because Chelsea was there reminding me while I'm crying, like, tell the story. It matters. It's going to help people be courageous. And without that community and that encouragement that Chelsea offered, I I don't think I could have told half the stories that were in that book. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You, you all, your responses are making me think about what we were talking about, composting and and deconstruction and reordering and liminality and the cycle I've noticed in my own life around and other creators have shared this with me as well, that through the grief, like there's birth, there are things like your grief is a portal in that way. Right. And I always say a book is more than a book, right? Because there's a whole process behind the book and inside of it and as you hold it and how you feel about it and the stories that are in it and then people receiving it and responding to it. And I'm thinking about the creation, right? What was created through that process of, it was like a terrible time to write, you know, what you said, Amy, right? It was like not the the time. So yeah, I'm thinking about the what is birthed through that experience and how often there's grief and loss and birth happening at the same time. And with that, this is my final question. I want to ask about your um, dream. I was going to say vision, but I'm going to use the word dream for this body of work and these steps and, and um, yeah, what is your dream for this? Um, so, and I asked this and I've asked it to other people who've written books or created things because I want us as a community to hold it with you. That's where my question's coming from. Thank you. Yes, thank you. I know that it's my dream uh, that we could have this program everywhere and accessible to all. 
And if I'm really dreaming and money is not an issue, I would dream that we would be able to, when a, a climate disaster happens, that we would be able to take a bus full of our facilitators down there and just hold space for whoever needs it and wants it and um, go right into the thick of the trauma and, and try to offer support. That's my real dream. I have been exploring the idea of subtle changes as really being really big changes um, because of fractal patterning and ripple effects and, and things like that. And a lot of people ask us when we do interviews, like, well, so people go through this 10 week program, like, how are they changed? What are these like big things that they're doing? And I try to push back on that. And, and it feels really sort of patriarchal to give an answer of like, well, they did this thing and they did this thing. Like, I'm more concerned about the questions that they hold now, the deconstruction that they're doing. I'm more concerned about how they treat their families and the people around them. I'm concerned about how we start challenging what our perceived notion of other is. Like, how do we start breaking down those barriers that has to start with the inner work? And so I think my dream is that we pay a bit more attention to the subtle transformations that are asking to be had right now. Everything is so fast. Everything is detaching us from reality and kind of creating this false illusion of, of what reality is by putting us into these screens and and what the 10 steps do, what the book is trying to do is say, come back into your body and come back to the people who are around you and notice the stories that you're telling yourself and start healing some of those stories. Notice when they're limiting you from really being an agent of your own life. Um, the other day, Amy and I were talking because I'm I'm feeling the sense of agency in my own life. I'm, I'm feeling like, what can I possibly do right now? There are kids being murdered. There are innocent people being murdered. And what does me talking about doing hard work do anything to help that? And Amy talked like just so poignantly about how what we do is we try to preserve our own humanity. Like we have agency over holding on to our humanity and never losing that. And that's where the inner work matters. That's where we do our trauma healing. That's why we feel our feelings. That's why we notice our dysregulation is so we don't continue to do harm and enact the othering that that very easily leads to war, very easily leads to genocide. We do our work to minimize our harm and then maximize feelings of joy and noticing of beauty and, and experiences of meaning. Because if we're not holding on to those experiences, why are we alive? Like those are the, the sort of jackpot of being in this human existence, especially as there's war, especially as there's suffering. And I think that sometimes I lose sight of that. Like I do this work so that I don't contribute more harm. I do that work so that I can help other people not contribute more harm and bring it back to the to the local, to the personal when things feel so out of reach. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's so what you all offered around your dreams and this um, what you just said, Laura, about like the full range of our experience as humans and Amy, what you offered to Laura, it sounds like about humanity, right? Like this is why we do this. Um, is such medicine for these times. And I think for many people listening and I appreciate you all dreaming and, and sharing and Amy, what you said about like my real dream is I'm so glad you said your real dream because 
money is a real thing. And also we can hold this dream for you and, um, people listening can support your work and spread the word and participate in your trainings and work. And, um, maybe they have the bus that can take the people, right? Like we never, we never know. And so I just want to, I don't, I don't want to minimize our dreams. I really want to uplift them and, and have community hold them. And I know that's connected to what you all already do. And, I want to thank you so much, a deep bow of gratitude to you both for being here and to Chelsea as well, and for for the your practice, your deep devotion to humanity and your practice, and for being in conversation with me today and for all you've shared here and now. So thank you so much for, for being here. Thank you, Michelle. It's been an honor. A true honor and deep bow of gratitude back and your work is so needed in the world. And I can't believe you invited us on your podcast. It's like (laughs) the most exciting thing that's happened in a long time. I I hope we can stay in uh, connection. Well, and and we're wrapping up far too soon because I need to read one thing that are, I need to read more than one thing, but your words have become a lesson for us and we use it in our teacher training. And so I'm wondering if I can quote you to you. You can. Yes, I'll, I'll allow it. (laughs) Okay. All right. I know we were wrapping up, but this seems very important. Okay. If we do not figure out how to acknowledge the reality that we are experiencing great losses, and if we do not find ways to witness each other as we grieve and hold the tenderness of being alive during a pandemic, civil unrest, systemic oppression, and climate change, we will continue to harm one another. If we stuff our tears down into our bodies, repressing what most needs to be expressed, we will die from broken hearts and unprocessed grief from finding refuge. It's brilliant. And we use it in our teacher training. I'm going to continue to use that that quote because the invitation of what you have given us is why we do this work, why this work is needed. You know, like the outer work, of course, we need that. But this is why we need the inner work. Thank you so much for sharing the words back that moved through me that I do not remember writing right? That like the channel or vessel for things to move through and yeah. And sharing it with others in your training and, and the call that's in there to not stuff it down and allow it to stagnate, but to be in conversation like this and community like this. So thank you. It was very sweet of, of you to share. Thank you. Thank Thank you you. for your, your words and your wisdom and your courage. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Finding Refuge. If you are enjoying the podcast, I encourage you to share it with friends and family members and to rate it on iTunes. In addition to sharing about this podcast, you can support my work in the world by becoming a patron on Patreon. You can find me there as Michelle C. Johnson, Skill in Action, yoga, and social justice. I offer monthly movement practices as well as monthly divination readings. Lastly, I want to share that I have a new book that came out in August of 2023. The book is titled A Space for Us, A Guide for Leading Black, Indigenous, and People of Color Affinity Groups 
published by Beacon Press. This book is a love song and a gift to Black, Indigenous, and people of color, as well as people of the global majority. I encourage you to purchase it if you are interested in facilitating affinity groups for BIPOC and people of the global majority, and if you're interested in learning more about anti-racism work. In addition, many of you know, We Healed Together came out in April of 2023, and thank you for your support of We Heal Together, and I hope you continue to support it and work with it and move through the rituals and practices to build community and connection. Thank you so much, and take care. Thank you.